0: Hello, welcome to November's uh, APTA Neurosection Vestibular SIGs podcast on Vestibulopathy. My name is Ethan Hood. I'm a physical therapist. I'm the assistant director of the St. Luke's Warren Balance Center and St. Luke's Warren Concussion Center in Philister, New Jersey. We have three additional members on a very distinguished panel today. We have Wendy Webb Schoenwald, who's a physical therapist and the owner of WWS Physical Therapy and Vestibular Rehab. Uh, she practices in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which is just outside Philadelphia. She's an, an orthopaedic clinical specialist, and her practice is also focused on uh, vestibular rehab and concussion management. She's also been lecturing for many years to local, uh, uh, local colleges in the area and also lectures with the Herdman Vestibular Certification Course. Her practice is also involved in a clinical trial with Temple University on the treatment of lateral canal BPPV. So welcome, Wendy. Thank you, Aysen. We have James Barsky, and Jim Barsky is the lead vestibular therapist at Chestnut Hill Hospital, which is a hospital right outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also the CEO of Neurology Psychiatry and Balance Therapy Center, um, which he opened a little over a year ago, which he's very excited about opening. So, welcome, Jim.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And we have Wendy Kriekels, who's also a physical therapist. And she's a senior instructor at the University of Colorado Denver Physical Therapy Program. And she also works in the clinic with a special interest in balance and vestibular disorders. So thanks for being here, Wendy. Thank you. Okay. So our topic is vestibulopathy. And and vestibulopathy, and we're going to get into it a little more, is is really kind of a a junk term that that is used when we see it on on a prescription from a physician. So I know, Wendy, you want to answer this first. But what exactly is vestibulopathy?
2: Right, so when I hear the term vestibulopathy, it's really meant to be a general term, usually referring to the peripheral end organ, so the vestibular system, otoliths, semicircular canals. In my experience, it's also been used to refer to the vestibular portion of cranial nerve 8. So it really, the term in and of itself just tells you it's probably more of peripheral origin, mm-hmm. and it really raises more questions about, well, which piece of the vestibular end organ is impaired in this particular case.
0: Okay. So, Wendy Schoenwald, when you see this on the prescription, what, what usually is the cause, or what actually usually is the actual uh,
3: diagnosis? Well, generally, um, a lot of the physicians aren't really sure what's wrong with the patient when we get that diagnosis. Um, Mm -hmm. It could be a a unilateral hypofunction, Mm -hmm. neuronitis, labyrinthitis, um, and sometimes even they lump BPPV into that uh, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Jim, do you see the same thing as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times they're not too sure exactly what they have. Um, um, It will often be used for like the vestibular neuritis or or labyrinthitis, though, Um, but they'll just use that term vestibulopathy or some of the other other
0: terms, too. Yeah, that's usually what I see in practice as well. Usually they mean uh, neuronitis or labyrinthitis, um, but also it can mean BPPV. It can actually mean Meniere's. Essentially what it really means is that something's not right with the peripheral vestibular system. Um, so it's kind of up to us during our evaluation to figure out what exactly is going on when we see that on the on the on the prescription. Now, now, what exactly is when we're talking about like noronitis and labyrinthitis? Does anyone know what, exactly what the incidence or, or epidemiologically how many numbers in the population are affected each year? Well, I
1: think um, you know, <laughs> No, I, was, I was say just just from um, uh, you know. Doing some, a little bit of a search, and I've seen you know ranges of about like seven percent of the patients okay. presenting to outpatient clinics that, that specialize in, in treating people with dizziness. Um, that's about the the range that I've seen. I've also seen a number of three point five per one hundred thousand people uh, as a, a a number too, and okay. it have, affecting mostly people you know between thirty and sixty years old, um, with a peak for women in, in the fourth decade uh, or men
0: for the sixth decade. Okay. So it's essentially, when you're talking about vestibulopathy, inner ear disorders are, are quite common, actually. And I guess that's why we're all in business, because we all have specialty balance centers, essentially. Um, now, in, in terms of vestibulopathy, and this goes to, to Wendy Schoenwald, when, when you're talking about neuronitis or neuritis and labyrinthitis, is there a difference, and what exactly is the difference then?
3: So, yes, um, and during our evaluation, we are trying to uh, figure out this. So, neuronitis is damage to the sensory nerves of the vestibular ganglion. Neuronitis uh, is inflammation of the vestibular portion of that eighth cranial nerve. Labyrinthitis um, refers to damage to both branches of the eighth nerve, and we generally differentiate that by the hearing loss that's associated with that. Okay. I think clinically we tend to use the term hypofunction or unilateral vestibular loss just indicating that there's some kind of imbalance functionally that um, in the clinic we're going to address. Okay.
0: Um, so, Wendy creakles from a pathophysiological
3: perspective,
0: what exactly happens with vestibulopathy? What's causing that damage to the nerve?
2: well we 've talked about a lot of a lot of terms here, so if we keep with the large umbrella of vestibulopathy, mm-hmm. each of these types of vestibulopathies are going to have a different mechanism, of course okay. so if we talk about a viral or a bacterial source that 's when we 're usually thinking about labyrinthitis, neuronitis, and it usually goes along with systemic illness, perhaps flu-like illness, um, fever, that sort of thing, that also will cause some vestibular symptoms for reasons I don't know that are exactly clear. Okay. Um, when we're talking about other types of vestibular um, pathology, which I don't think we're going to do necessarily in this in the scope of this particular podcast, but certainly Meniere's disease is a vestibulopathy with its very own mechanism. You know, acoustic neuroma, same thing, gel, um, all of that. So if we want to just kind of narrow this discussion from vestibulopathy in general down to neuronitis and labyrinthitis, I think it's a really nice model to discuss how we as physical therapists will treat it and like Wendy said, it really is worth thinking about a hypofunction, and we want to uptrain to the best ability that we can.
0: No, I agree with you. I agree with, with just kind of limiting it to neuronitis or labyrinthitis mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Jim, as far as some of the symptoms that a patient's going to come in with, either neuronitis or labyrinthitis, what are some of the symptoms that the patient's going going to, to bring into the clinic? What are they going to be complaining of?
1: yeah well um, very uh, acutely they'll have uh, they can have uh, very severe vertigo uh, nausea vomiting, and uh, being of at disequilibrium um, and uh, this can last for up to a day to uh, several days um, once they start to uh, stabilize feel better and there's some um, you know uh, adaptation within the brain, um, then they may feel this more just with uh, certain movements or within uh, certain en- environments. Um, but it's usually a fairly sudden onset um, with uh, strong uh, vertiginous symptoms um, lasting for uh, a day to several days uh, initially. And then it can change from there depending on uh, progression and um, how well the patient's managed early on.
0: Okay. Um, so as, as far as between neuritis or nornitis and labyrinthitis, the the, the, the main symptom to differentiate them essentially is if there's any auditory symptoms as well is that correct
1: yeah that, that's um how we know it typically in in the field we would differentiate I mean, if there's a hearing from like a loss uh strong ring roaring in ears with the same type of presentation of the dizziness yeah which uh you know, refer that as a, a labyrinthitis, um, either affecting the whole nerve or possibly the, the labyrinth itself, um, you know, without the hearing uh, it, the symptoms, um, just the, the dizziness and the nausea and then vomiting, and then we would you know, typically refer that as like the vestibular neuritis or neuronitis.
0: Okay. And now, as, as far as we, we talked to, Wendy, Shunel, I'm going to ask you this because we, we talked a little bit about, about mentioning as a hypofunction which, you know, if you look at it from a neurological perspective, it means that the firing rate of the eighth cranial nerve will decrease um, with the damage from the neuronitis or labyrinthitis. But but there's some debate on, on what about having an irritative lesion as well. Um, can you talk about what, what exactly an irritative lesion is?
3: When I think of uh, an irritative lesion, I often um, refer back to Meniere's, which, again, okay. um, we discussed. Um, and you know, my perception of what's happening is there becomes a hypersensitive activity on the involved side, on the Muneer side, mm-hmm. and um, and this can be quantified with uh, VNG or caloric testing, and sequential ENGs can show you know, an increase or a decrease in that. Um, but I, I think of it as a irritative, a hyper reactive side versus when we think of labyrinthitis or um, neuronitis, we think of a, a, a decrease, a loss of sensitivity on that side. So, I mean, it continues to create that chronic type imbalance that um, patients have developed because the imbalance between the right and the left ear. Okay. So,
0: Wendy crackles, do you see the same thing as well when you're talking about an irritative lesion?
2: Yeah, you know, the physicians that I work with really don't use the term irritative lesion, um, Mm -hmm. and they usually don't refer as much. I think physical therapists are very um, good at focusing on the symptoms for the individual patient. Um, Once my physicians say, you know, this is either there's a medical term for it or not. They will refer either way, which in a way is nice, but they usually don't discuss um, that term, right? It, maybe I it's feel geography. Like that you know,
3: term mostly comes from uh, from the audiology, from the VNG reports. I mean, that's usually who I hear it from. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of
0: practice, though, in terms actually being in the clinic, does it really change the type of treatment that you're actually doing? when you when you say someone actually has an irritative lesion versus a hypofunction?
3: Personally, I think that um, it just may be that I would expect that patient to move slower okay. than um, somebody else because if they are more hypersensitive or their symptoms are fluctuating, um, I'm not going to expect them to react as classically as a labyrinthitis that's naturally healing and should get better over the next uh, two to four weeks. Um, An irritative lesion, I might think, I might expect that to take a little bit longer. Okay. Um,
0: Jim, now as far as we we have the patient coming in to the clinic and they're diagnosed with either uh, neuronitis or labyrinthitis, are are there any special tests that that we're going to do or any special questionnaires that we're going to do as a vestibular therapist that's going to differentiate from a basic neuro exam?
1: Yeah, so in addition to doing like the the standard screens, um, I, I would do specific uh, tests l- looking at the, the function of the vestibular ocular reflex, um, so prim- primarily looking at the, the head impulse test. Um, uh, other ones that I'll do just actually looking for patterns of nystagmus under infrared goggles or, or frenal lenses, um, which can indicate... Um, you know, the, the location of the or the side affected and, you know, whether or not it's a central or peripheral problem. Um, I'll do a head shake test also. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, uh, might, if, if, you know, helped with uh, the diagnosis if I'm still not sure, I'll do a dynamic visual acuity test, you know, um, again, another test of the vestibular ocular reflex. Um, as far as uh, questionnaires, um, um, you know, there's a uh, dizziness, handicap inventory, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking at uh, how their dizziness is affecting their lives. And also, you know, these patients often have problems with balance. I so will look if they'll use the activity-specific balance confidence scale or ABC mm-hmm. scale, looking at how balance it, uh, affects them. Um, also wanted to just briefly add here, when these patients come in in the acute setting um, and they're trying to rule out, you know, is this a central problem or is this a, a, a peripheral problem, um, testing protocol that I, I go through and, and do in addition to the regular screens is um, I do a head impulse test, I um, evaluate the nystagmus and also look for a test of skew where um, studies have shown that um, if patients have a positive head impulse test, um, they have a pattern of nystagmus consistent with a peripheral problem or they, and they do not have a skew deviation that is mostly consistent with a peripheral problem. So we're talking mm-hmm. about the vestibular uh, neuritis or or labyrinthitis. If any of one of those tests are more consistent with a central problem, then it's more likely to be a, a stroke or, or a central problem.
0: Okay. Um, when, do you, when did you have any additional special tests or any additional questionnaires that you find useful?
3: I think that um, what I want to, I guess, emphasize is that the frenzel's lenses are very helpful in mm-hmm. um, differentiating, differentiating the labyrinthitis, um, neuronitis from someone who doesn't have those to be available because often we can see some nystagmus uh, mm-hmm. without room light um, that we don't see in our room light um, oculomotor mm-hmm. exam. And I guess the other thing that we do are balance exam tests, um, the sensory integration tests. I usually use the Fucata, um, functional gait assessment if they are more able and maybe a BERG if um, I'm looking more at static. Um, ability for balance.
2: Right, and and I would add, Jim, you mentioned the dizziness handicap inventory. I'm not sure if you mentioned the activities of Balance confidence scale, but I really like that one as more of a larger measure of participation and and really teasing out how much of their symptoms is true dizziness, because we really have a two-tiered approach in assessing and intervening the dizziness component and then also the balance component, so that ABC is one that that I like um, as well. And then um, the only other things I would add is just what what really remains in our regular um, in our regular vestibular testing sort of bag of of assessments. We would certainly look at cicadic eye movement and um, visual tracking, all that kind of thing. And I think one of the keys is really to have the individual rate their dizziness. I tend to use a scale of zero to ten, but really to get at how, how sort of flared up are their symptoms, how severe are their symptoms, and with education and with their home program, we should see that gradually start to decline so that their symptoms are more manageable. So that rating, that patient rating, I think is really important. Okay.
0: So as far as someone comes in with, with neuronitis or or labyrinthitis, um, when should, vestibular therapy should be started? Should be, should be started immediately after their onset of symptoms, or should we wait for a week or two to see if the symptoms are going to spontaneously resolve? Wendy Krikos, when should we um, start vestibular therapy?
2: Well, usually these individuals are feeling too miserable right at the get-go. I usually don't see them until they're six to eight weeks out, sometimes even 10 to 12 weeks out, and they just haven't been able to come back down to a normal baseline. So oftentimes they'll come to me, it are, it's the people who don't automatically get better. It's the people who seek their physician on follow-up and they're still having problems and then they come to me. So I don't know if if Jim and Wendy, you have different practice setups, but I tend well, to see the people who don't yeah. just spontaneously resolve. So it's usually that two to three months post initial okay. infection. Wendy, and I Wendy.
3: often, um, I'm in private practice and we deal with a lot of direct referrals from primary care physicians who often are trying to avoid those emergency room visits. So they frequently will send patients, like within the first week or two, um, when they're up and they're mobile again, they're obviously not, um, you know, where they are at six weeks, but often um, we see them initially educate them um, and explain to them how they can start out with VOR times one. you know, simple exercises and how to control their symptoms so that they can kind of keep moving and get back to work. I mean, this can be, as we know, a very disabling thing and people just don't understand that they might have to miss work for a while. So they want to get back as soon as they can.
0: Jim, do you see anything different in your
3: practice?
1: Um, yes, yes, a little bit, uh, but more more so much with, uh, um, um, yeah, when he was just referring to. Um, I. Like to see these patients immediately, um, even when you know then their, uh, their symptoms are so bad they can not even open their eyes. Now I'm not doing any adaptation exercises with them at that point, but I think the education piece is so important because this is a condition that's very mystifying even to the healthcare practitioners that are seeing the patient um, within the hospital. And I think it's important for us to be there to number one just educate the, the patient, tell them what is going on and what they can expect as far as their recovery. And I think that goes a long way to preventing the patients from a more prolonged course where they may end up with chronic subjective dizziness and, and other problems in the future. Once they can get to the point where they can start to open their eyes. And sit up and stand up a little bit, I think educating them and also starting with activity, getting them to move around uh, more, which has been shown to be beneficial, um, not to where they're, you know, they're overdoing, again, educating them on proper dosing, where they're not uh, um, making themselves, you know, too sick, but where they can, you know, move to within within their tolerances and telling them, you know, that it's better to be upright and in some light versus just, you know closing your eyes, and being in bed all, all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they can start to move around, move a hell of a bit, and then starting really gently with um, some of the vestibular adaptation exercises.
0: So you're talking to actually, you've seen those people in acute. You know? Yeah, yeah definitely. In,
1: in the emergency room sometimes, yeah.
0: Yeah, so actually you're, you're helping facilitate the discharge process by, by explaining to them what's going on, and then maybe just using some substitution techniques, you know, to, to kind of have their visual system override their vestibular system to, to give them better postural stability so they can walk to the bathroom and they can walk around their environment. Is that what you're kind of getting at a little bit? Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely.
1: So when they can walk out you yeah, tell them the yeah, yeah, idea you know, focus on the, the point at the end of the hallway, don't turn too quickly because um, mm-hmm. they may say, oh, I feel good as I'm walking. Then they turn quickly, and then they go, oh, it's coming back again. Well, it's not coming back. They just didn't realize that and you know, the speed of movement can affect their symptoms. Um, so that's going along with, you know, getting to move, move and also educating them as they are going along so they know what to expect. Um, that helps it calm Um, you know, their uh, their emotions, their anxiety, which then can prevent, you know, a prolonged course of of, of this disease.
3: The other thing that I also try to educate them about is often um, BPPV is something that follows one of these events, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh, to them, when they get another episode, like, Say they're six weeks out and they have they're feeling better and they get an event of BPPV, they think oh this is starting all over again, mm-hmm. but um, you know try to educate them that this can be something that occurs yeah. and that if, again if they need our services um, that's something that's addressed differently than um, the neuronitis.
0: Okay, well, Wendy K. So, so let's say we have a patient with. Um, neuronitis, and they're, say, they're two, three, four, or five weeks out from the initial onset, and we see them in outpatient physical therapy, and we evaluate them, and they definitely have a hypofunction. What are some of the basic exercises that we're going to prescribe to to improve the hypofunction?
2: Right. Well, basically, we address all tiers of what's symptomatic for the patient. So if they have um, provocation of their symptoms with head movement, eye movement, um, we try to get them to move gradually, starting with slow movements. To moving with a little bit faster movements and again having the patient rate and pace the exercise and take frequent breaks i usually have patients do i really emphasize home program because i think you need multiple 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 repetitions but they really need to understand how to pace their symptoms so they don't flare themselves and then try to get in the car and drive for instance um, so lots of patient education as you guys have the i think it's a luxury i'm so happy to hear that you're in the emergency department that's not where i'm practicing i see these people once it's starting to merge onto becoming a chronic issue so i love that you guys are in the forefront i think it's so important for pts but for me it's usually their return to work they're returning to driving but things are just not right yet so really lots of patient education home exercise program head movements eye movements um Balance activities, I like doing like a CTSIB and seeing how they do, see if I can up train more that vestibular use for balance. I also find that these individuals like you guys do initially, they still need later on in sort of what settles them. So if they're in a busy parking lot, they absolutely need to be using gaze stabilization, just focus, maybe stop if they need to look around their surroundings and not try to turn their head and walk at the same time, that kind of thing. So just really substituting and paring down the activity. But then when it's safe in their own own home, that they're pushing the envelope a little bit. So that's both with head and eye movements and with with balance training.
0: Wendy Schoenwald, do you you stick to specific exercises in particular?
2: Um, Yes, I
3: definitely um, use the vestibular adaptation exercises, uh, VOR1, uh, VOR2. Generally, in terms of movement and position, we start out pretty statically so they might be doing those exercises standing with a narrow base of support mm-hmm. um, or on a piece of foam and then working into walking and trying to move their head and also then maybe working into more rotational movements that are functional, maybe diagonal type patterns because as Jim said, they think they're fine if they keep their head still and they make these quick movements and. You know, they feel like symptoms come back. Um, and I, too, i am usually seeing these patients uh, maybe one time a week with an emphasis on a little bits often with their home exercises. Spend a couple minutes here not overloading their system and just kind of reminding it all day long uh, with that little bouts of exercise how to up-train.
0: Uh-uh. How, how, how long do you usually see them for? What's the, what's the average time course if you see seen one? Time? I would
3: say... You know, depending on the severity of the patient when they come in, sometime between three and six weeks. But most patients are better in six weeks. And I think um, what Wendy said is true. If we can see them earlier and give them that strong course of reassurance and exercise and awareness um, of, of the problem, that they tend to not develop into these more chronic um, patients. I know. I know. In my practice, that if, if someone
0: presents with labyrinthitis neuronitis and they, they scored a high fall risk on one of the or any of the balance assessments I use, whether it's a functional gait assessment, dynamic gait index, um, I will start seeing them twice a week until their balance improves. That's true. And then, true. I will, yeah. and I will, then I'll then i decrease to once a week. And usually, I agree, Usually, anywhere from about three to six weeks, um, they're, they're more than likely going to be better by that time. And, and as Wendy Krekel said before, the, the home program is paramount. If they don't do the home exercises, they are not going to get better nearly as quick. Um, Jim, do you do any additional exercises as well? Um, No,
1: I agree with everything everybody said, and that that pretty much covers it. yeah, uh, using the vestibular adaptation exercises. Um, if there are particular either self motions or visual motions that 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 um, you know give them trouble, you know, I may include a little bit of habituation exercise in that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's definitely the, the balance. Even if they're not having too much trouble with balance in general, but just to try to get them to utilize their um, vestibular system um, just with uh, moving around in their environment. Uh, maybe a general walking program and again, educating in the concurrent activity. But uh, now that's pretty much all, all the same things that, that I do too.
3: So the other thing that I'd like to mention, um, Ethan, is I find a lot of patients, um, if they're seen in the ER or they're seen in the primary care office, they're given (laughs) Anivert or Valium or Ativan, whichever, um, some kind of a neuro-relaxant. And often the patients tend to stay with this for extended periods of time. And when they get to us, That's one of the first things I'm trying to stop them using because it does delay their ability to adapt with the exercises that we give them. So I try to make sure that I always look at um, what meds they've been given along Mm -hmm. that line. Now, I mean, sometimes in the acute phases they're given um, prednisone or antiviral drugs or antibiotics for whatever, you know, the doctor Mm -hmm. thinks is going on acutely, and that's different than the antivirc. Mm -hmm. Um, or meclizine. So you're trying to get them off the meclizine as quickly as possible then? Exactly. Okay.
2: And I just need to add this other Wendy here that um, anecdotally my population who are kind of on that verge of becoming more chronic, almost all of them are still taking those medications persistently Uh and it just begs the question, you know, if, if we had more upfront care and education, a lot of them just think this is this is my course in life now. This is just it. And I think you make a valuable point that that is absolutely one of the first things I address. And I usually need to bring in the physician, too. I say, well, did the physician tell you you're going to need to stay on this now for the rest of your life? And they say, well, no, they said I could wean off of it as I wanted to, but I've been afraid to. So again, a lot of education, because they're still having some symptoms, but they're not going to recover fully if they're constantly under a vestibular suppressant either. So that's often one of the starting points uh, um, with my population is absolutely weaning them from those medications.
0: Great, a great,
1: great to hear. A great point. Yeah, if um, I could uh, comment no, directly on that because um, yeah, this is uh, absolutely imperative, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with what, what everybody is saying. And that, that's something that um, um, yeah, I have a, a little bit of advantage being in the acute care and the environment um, is that I do try to educate the physicians on, on this because you know they're, they're not specialists, even you know. Some of the you know, neurologists, ENTs, are not specialists either, and, and they just um, are, are unaware. I tell them, yes, these patients, they do need you know, when they're stuck in bed and they can't open their eyes, but only for this first day or two. Once they can start getting up and moving around a little bit, that's when they should be taken off of it because it will prolong uh, the recovery. Um, so I try to educate the patient on that, I try to educate the physicians, so they don't have, end up because I do see patients now patients, yeah, six, eight weeks later, they're still popping that, and the, the medication is not making any difference, and I just wish that they had stopped it earlier on to right. allow that the, the um, you know the brain does not be suppressed so it can actually adapt to the um the tone imbalance that's there.
3: And I think too that the physicians uh, in the primary care that I am in and out of their offices all the time, they appreciate the education that we can provide them because they use it and they think they're only using it for that beginning phase. Um, I don't think they're always processing that they keep renewing these prescriptions because sometimes it's done through automated systems Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. But educating them that um, it's not necessary to be used long term is, is key.
2: Right. And I just want to say one more thing from the patient's perspective that I see is they don't necessarily know the difference between a more curative medication, like if they do have a course of antibiotics or steroids, versus a symptomatic medication. And a lot of times it's freeing for the patient to say, oh, you mean that meclizine isn't going to cure the problem? It's only there if I absolutely need it. And that usually is a really nice breakthrough, I think, in my patient population. Absolutely.
0: Okay, Wendy Schoenwald, this is the last question here. We'll we'll all interject with this as well. Can vestibulopathy return again?
3: Can the person decompensate?
0: Or Um, I should say,
3: with neuronitis and labyrinthitis? I definitely see that happening again, and I do educate them on discharge about this um, because uh, when I usually feel that they're ready for discharge, um, I ask them to continue to do the exercises for a period of time until they have no symptoms with them and they feel that they're functioning fine. Um, But often when they've gotten a flu or a cold or some other kind of event that kind of keeps them low um, or in bed for a couple days, especially our elderly um, persons, um, they can decompensate. And I think in that situation we have a reason for it because they're just inactive and their system automatically goes back to this imbalance or this laziness. But I think there's decompensation, too, that we don't always understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, in those patients, if we um, facilitate them to begin their exercises again and um, challenge their system, they they generally recover nicely. Um, and then the other thing um, I always try to educate them about the course of BPPV that can follow too Mm -hmm. um, and how they can differentiate between that versus their labyrinthitis because the labyrinthitis acutely, as you know, is a constant level of vertigo, whereas the BPPV is going to be a brief Mm -hmm. vestibular event um, that should calm down. I don't think the patients always know the difference between that because once they've had um, a neuronitis, they automatically think that's what's happening again. Jim, do you have anything to add?
1: Um, just a little bit, just, yeah, I believe that um, vestibular neuritis is one of those things that probably doesn't um, happen again often. I've seen studies ranging between 1 and 20 percent of a recurrence rate, mm-hmm. um, but it, it can happen. I think it's less likely um, early on within like the first year or so after uh, it occurring, um, you know, because the damage is still there in the peripheral system and the brain is adapted, but then, yeah, if there's something that happens, um, you know, to the, the brain itself, or if there's a cognitive piece, or even like a behavioral emotional piece that can, um, you know, decompensate centrally, then you can have a reoccurrence of uh, the the symptoms. Wendy
0: Krakos, do you have anything to add?
2: Yeah, I would just add um, Jim has made the point towards general activity, which I think is great, and then Wendy talking about, especially if they're elderly, they have other things going on, and they can decompensate very quickly. I think it's so important to get these people back up if they are having whatever the symptomatology is, having them not be so afraid of general activity. So even if they need to use gaze stabilization, but they're able to walk up and down a hallway and just start to Get themselves active again, they do themselves such a disservice by resting and hoping it'll go away, <laughs> yeah. and I think that point of patient education um, is just really crucial in getting them up and showing them that you know there are things that may aggravate your symptoms, but there's a whole lot you can do that's not aggravating your symptoms and and you need to be you need to be active so
0: okay, great, great. all right well that was great viewpoints. I'd like to thank Wendy. Jim and Wendy Kriekels, thank you very much for participating in the November's uh, Vestibular SIGS Vestibulopathy podcast. I can't speak today. Um